Uh, let's just get started up in Blanco. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Hey, I, uh, I called you last week about this uh, live oak tree I've got that was not looking real well, and, and you recommended doing that sick tree treatment to right. it. And, right, right. Uh, I had already uncovered the the flare, and I was uh, I had a follow up question on that. Sure. I, uh, I noticed there's some a couple of girdling roots that are are certainly there. Uh, one of them is is really kind of grafted to the side of the tree trunk itself. Right. So my my question is, um, is it worth trying to get that thing off of there, or could I be trying to? Will I be possibly doing more damage to the tree? Well, you won't that. be doing more damage because you know it's um, that that it, that root is kind of like a noose, so to speak. And uh, you've got a noose around a noose around your neck is really cutting into your into your neck, and you know it might not be easy to get it off, and you might do a little bit of sort of ancillary damage to it, but long term. Uh, that may be the principal reason that that tree is, you know, in obviously poor health because it's just the, in the case of a woody tree, uh, that area that is just underneath the bark, that is where the phloem tissue is. That's where the principal, you know, way that nutrients get from the leaves down to the roots. And when that gets damaged through girdling, through uh, root girdling through um, rodent damage or, you know, deer rubbing their antlers on it or whatever, you basically cut off the nutrient supply to the roots. The root system begins to deteriorate, and that's when the tree starts going downhill. So you don't necessarily have to get every bit of it out, but it would, uh, and, and you know, it's pretty major surgery, but it's sometimes necessary if we're going to try to save the patient's life. It's something you want to do carefully, and it's usually just done with a mallet and a wood chisel, but sometimes these girdling roots have actually gotten so much pressure built up with them pushing inward with a tree trying to grow and pushing outward. When you make that cut, some of these things literally blow back at you. So, you know, be be careful in doing this because there may be some pressure behind holding that root in place. But um, I think it's probably the only chance for your tree to recover and begin doing well. Yeah, so that was my next question. You answered it was how to get the thing off since it's so tightly grafted there. I, I saw a video online. Somebody used a sawzall to to break free one end of it and then pry it away with a chisel, like you said. Well, I, you know, sawzalls are wonderful things, but where it's actually started being embedded into the tree, uh, even Norm Abrams couldn't use the sawzall carefully enough to really do that. I think your wood chisel is going to be the the way to go, um, and, you know, perhaps if you are able to at least, you know, pry a part of it out, then you could use your sawzall to cut it off. But don't feel like you have to get the entire thing out. I mean, if it is truly embedded, you probably would do better to go along with a wood chisel and, you know, cut through, actually through that root in little segments about every three inches along that root, and then don't worry whether it's, you know, in there or whether it's not at this point. The tree is going to be able to grow, to push outward, to redevelop some of that phloem uh, in the areas where you've taken the roots out. So don't feel like you have to totally pry that uh, that girdling root out in order to accomplish what you're trying to do. If you just cut it several places, that will take the pressure off and um, uh, 
uh, it it will be it wouldn't be as good. I mean, if you could get the whole thing out, but without seeing it, I really can't tell you whether you can. And sometimes they are so deeply embedded. We see the same thing occasionally where, you know, ranchers used to. They didn't want to dig a hole and put a fence post in. They just took the barbed wire and wrapped it two or three times around the tree. And that ultimately can girdle and kill a tree. And uh, I've had to go through more than once on trees that I found on my property that were being girdled by uh, chunks of wire wrapped around them. And it just wasn't possible to pull it out. But I would go through and cut it every couple of inches along there. And the trees recovered and have done quite well. So, um, you know, you, that that's a judgment call on your part uh, and – I think you'd be fine either way. I just want you to be very careful doing it. Um, one last question on that topic. If uh, I do any kind of uh, minor nicks to the to the root flare area when I'm, when I'm uncovering these things on some other trees or, or further work on this one, do you recommend spraying those little nicks and stuff with, you know, some spray paint or just leave them alone? I, I would definitely spray. I mean, those are okay. potential sources of oak wilt, but I probably yeah. would not use the old black tarry pruning paint. That's That has some things in it that are a little bit caustic. In this case, as in as in all cases, you're, you're only trying to give that area protection for 7 to 10 days. And um, one of you're you're leading me right into we've got a great arborist coming to give a talk at our Shades of Green this morning, David Vaughn, and he's the one that told me that they're actually finding a water-based uh, spray paint probably is even better than the old pruning paint. So all you're doing sealing it up for a couple of weeks, and uh, um, you don't have to go overboard on what you what you spray it with. Just whatever you've got sitting on the on the shelf in the garage that'll seal it up for a few days. That's all you need to use. Okay. Um, one last question. The, uh, the vinegar orange oil weed killer, is that only good for broadleaf weeds? No, that's good for everything. It works just like Roundup, just without the toxins. Okay. And uh, it Very again, good. you're only coating the foliage. You don't have to soak it into the soil. Um, and if it's a really tough, you know, something with, you know, deep roots, underground rhizomes, it will take more than once to kill it. But uh, by the same token, it does not work on brown foliage. The only thing it's going to work on is green foliage. So, uh, it, yeah, broad leaves, uh, grassy weeds, just about anything. You could even use it to burn the leaves off the sprouts on, you know, the oak sprouts that come off the roots of stressed trees. But uh, it's not going to kill the tree, but the little leaves are going to eventually come back out. Mm-hmm. Okay. All righty. Really appreciate it. That's all well, I had. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a great weekend out there, and I appreciate Thanks. the call, Paul. Okay. Thank you, okay. sir. Goodbye. All right. Yes, by the way, uh, David Vaughn, who is <laughs> the smartest man I've ever known when it comes to trees. Anyway, David's going to be at Shades Green this morning giving a seminar on tree health and tree care. Um, that'll start at 945 or around 94, five, 945 as our seminars always do. Coffee's on by nine and, uh, hope you will, hope you'll come out and hear David speak because let me tell you, if you have questions about trees, if you're planting trees, if you're wondering about the maintenance of the trees, um, well, come on out and learn from the guy that I have learned so much from. And that is David Vaughn. And of course, like always, our seminars are absolutely free. All right. Let's keep going here. Teresa and Art are my next two callers and Teresa's next. Good morning. Teresa. Good morning. Good I morning. have a question. Um, we had planted the garlic like you had uh, mm-hmm. in your fall seminar. Right. When do we pull it? 
you the best time to pull will be in late spring the tops will begin to turn brown and fall over for me it's usually about may if it stays real cool and fairly moist it might be june but when those tops start to break over and turn brown that is the best time to uh to go ahead and harvest your garlic now i don't recommend washing anything except what you're going to be using immediately i tend to just let it dry and then take a brush or something and just brush the dirt off of your you know pot of garlic and then you can store them however you want to some people braid them together and hang them up to dry or some people just will put them in any good place where they get good air circulation but uh when the when the tops start falling over and browning that will be your indication that the garlic is is the best time you can harvest it you can harvest it at any time to use but if you're looking for it to form that pod all those little cloves down at the bottom if you're planning to store it and it'll keep for a year uh, then wait yes. until the tops start to die off, and uh, that's when you'll harvest. Okay, well, that's fantastic. One more question. My mother-in-law um, has a rosemary uh, mm-hmm. bush. Not, not that big, but I'm, I'm hoping to transport it to my house. Is it possible to do that or, or just buy a new plant? Tell me, tell me how big the one at your uh, mother-in-law's house is. I'm going to say maybe three feet. It's not that big. Oh, yeah. It, well, that's big. Yeah, you're. It's realize that you could go out and buy a nice four-inch pot of rosemary for two or three dollars, and yeah. um, I, the chances of moving a plant that's pretty good size, especially if it's a prostrate or spreading rosemary. I would uh, I'd buy a new plant because you're probably going to end up killing it trying to move it. Yeah. Now, if you're planning on making some great rosemary chicken or rosemary shortbread, go ahead and harvest all you want to off of her plant. But I I sure wouldn't try to dig it. Anything that's been in the ground more than a year or two, uh, especially a sensitive plant like rosemary. Rosemary, you mess with its roots and it's going to die. It's not quite as sensitive as a mount laurel, but they are not easy to transplant. And when they get up to that size, no. you know, save yourself $20 worth of labor and spend two, three bucks and get a, a nice new plant and it will grow quickly for you. And you know what? I really meant to attend your spring seminar. I just, I couldn't do it. I just, my time was just uh, spread uh, out. Believe me, I understand. <laughs> what what time is the best for the tomatoes to start getting your, your ground ready for the spring tomatoes? Well, we always, I start getting the ground ready back in January or February. Um, uh-huh. and it's never too late. Just the sooner you do it, the better. And then we actually plant our tomato plants when we're past the danger of the last freeze. And don't ask me when that is. <laughs> you know, I, I used to work for a wonderful gentleman in the hill country, and uh, people would come in and they'd say to him, Alton, when's it going to freeze? And he'd look at him and say, when it gets to 32. <laughs> so I'd like to hope in San Antonio we are quite likely past the last frost or freeze. The hill country, I just don't know. But you go ahead and get your soil you know, in shape, getting ready for those tomatoes whenever you have the time and the energy to do it, Teresa. So it, the sooner the better. Okay, so when everybody's starting tomato plants, so I just wait until I think it's, I mean, later down in March maybe, hopefully. Well, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's, I've seen it freeze in April in San Antonio, so I'm just not going to go out on that limb. I usually plant early. I usually go ahead and put the cages around them. I haven't planted mine yet, thank goodness. I would have had to dig them up last week as cold as it got in the hill country. But I usually go ahead and put the cages around them. I'll wrap some of the 
insulating fabric around them to protect them. And in San Antonio, yeah, I think you're probably totally safe to plant your tomatoes, but you may have to cover them another night or two. We're just going to have to watch the weather and see. But, hey, tomato plants are cheap. You can buy a whole plant for what one good big tomato costs you at the grocery store. So if they freeze, they freeze, and you stick some more of them out. It's not a great loss. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You have a great day. You are certainly welcome, and you do the same. All right. Art, Dwight, and Carol are my next three callers. Art's up first. Good morning, Art. Hi, Art. Oh, did I hit the right one there? There we go, Art. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I'm concerned about my onions. I planted them, didn't get them until about uh, early uh, December. Uh I prepared the soil very well, raised bed garden, got about 100 of them, plus a bunch of garlic. Uh, <laughs> I use hash to grow every mm-hmm. couple of weeks, but uh, they're getting real tall, probably 18 inches. Some of them are kind of falling over, Okay, but there's certainly no bulb development, and that ain't good. <laughs> Well, bulb development is a result of sunshine. Bulb development, the bulb on an onion, the part we love to eat, is uh, just a you know sugar storage organ, so to speak. It's just a little closet where the bulb you know makes all this sugar in the presence of sunlight in its green leaves and stores it in that bulb. We have had the cloudiest january and february i ever remember and i've seen a lot of january and february's in this uh uh, area but it's just been day after day maybe we get an hour or two of sunshine a lot of days the sun never comes out at all and quite frankly you know it's it's taking a toll in a number of ways a lot of things aren't developing the big bulbs yet a lot of citrus is not nearly as sweet and juicy as it would be and it's just you know comes down to just not enough sunshine so not a lot we can do about that art but uh and it may turn out to be not the best year around for onions but um the only real problems are the ones that bolt the ones that start to make that seed pot up on top and those things you know once they start doing that they're not going to do much more so harvest them and enjoy them as green onions but you give us 30 to 45 days of sunny more typical spring weather your onions are gonna they're gonna produce a nice bulb they may not produce a giant bulb but they're gonna do well you're doing it all right. Hess grows great, and every two weeks is, I think, about right on uh, fertilizing. I would be watering more often than that. This uh, We haven't really had any rains to put any water in the soil, so I'd be watering about every third or every fourth day down in your sandy soil. Well, okay. You make me feel better. <laughs> well, I can't change the weather, and uh, Mother Nature just sometimes isn't as conducive to gardening activities as we would like her to be, but uh, that's what makes the good years look even better. Well, you know, uh, I'm believing, so uh, good. Okay, Uh, you you sure helped again. You're still the man. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Art. You have a great great weekend. We'll talk to Dwight next. Good morning, Dwight. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Oh, well, my, I saved a bunch of peaches. Good. From, from the freeze. I just want to let you know, you told me to cover it, and I did with the light. Very and, good. Um, I was, uh, my onions, that's one of my questions. My onion and my garlic, they don't look like they're doing anything. When when do you think the garlic would be ready? This is the first time I've 
ever planted it. Well, it it will be late spring, early summer. When the top begins to brown and fall over, that is when your garlic is ready to harvest if you're planning to store it. Now, you can pull some. You will have something of a bulb develop, and you can use it for cooking at any point. But to get it up to where it's that mature bulb, so to speak, with all the little cloves inside, Usually it's late May, early June, depending on the weather. It could be a little bit later in June. But when the tops begin shriveling and falling over, that's the time to go ahead and harvest your garlic, dry it, brush it off with a, you know, just a, a good, um, not too stiff bristle brush. Don't don't wash it. Somehow that really shortens the shelf life. But just brush the dirt off of it and braid it, hang it up, do whatever you want. It'll last a long time for you. Okay. Another question for for you: Can can I? I have a lot of oak leaves. I'm, can I use those to, uh, in the garden? You can use them yeah. as a mulch on the surface of the soil. But the things that break down, that uh, deteriorate, make things deteriorate and and compost, as it were. A lot of those microorganisms take nitrogen directly from the air to use in the breakdown process. If you work things into the soil, if you actually blend them into the soil before they've gone through a lot of their breakdown process, then they start stealing from the fertilizer that you're putting in the soil. So oak leaves are, you know, they're great things. They're great as a mulch on the surface, but don't be tilling them in or working them into the soil until they're fairly fully broken down. And if you want to make them even better, if you want to help them break down more quickly, run your lawnmower through them, chop them up a little bit. The more surface area you get, the faster they are going to break down. So you can just rake them up and use them if you like. But if you rake them up, run your mower through them, and then uh, put them on that way, I think that's the best of both worlds, and it will speed up the breakdown. Uh, if you want to make them break down even faster, you can spray a little liquid molasses or anything that you know has some sugar in it, and this uh, speeds up the composting process. So, yeah, long answer to a good short question. Uh, they're excellent in the garden, but only on the surface of the soil. You know, to prevent, to prevent weeds and such. Absolutely. But I've I've, I've had a pile saved up for about oh I guess four years. Right. So, well, it, once they break it, you know, you know how long it takes to break to break. <laughs> well, it and especially when it's as dry as it has been up until last fall, we were in a really moderately severe drought, and we got really good rain September, October, into November. And quite frankly, in my opinion, we're in drought again. We haven't had a decent soaking rain uh, in probably forty-five days at least. So. Uh, yeah, they're slow to break down, but when they stop looking like leaves and start looking more like just a mulchy material, then they're broken down enough to go into the soil. And some of your four-year-old leaves may be to that point. The ones on the bottom of the pile may okay. be far enough broken down, but uh, don't rush it. We, Like you say, up on the surface, they suppress weeds. They warm the soil in the winter, cool it in the summer. They help hold moisture in. Mulchers do a lot of good things, and those leaves are perfect for that purpose. Okay, by the way, we've had two 100s for this morning. <laughs> I poured one 100th out of my gauge before I left home. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, it's all it does is make the sleet, street slick. And, uh, you know, I guess the humidity might be good. It keeps things from drying out. But we sure haven't had the rain to put any moisture into the soil. So maybe that time's no, coming. Yep. It, it will get another good rain, but... Uh, uh, like my old buddy Alton, I was quoting a minute ago, used to always say, well, well every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. 
Okay, well, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> Dwight, lucky <laughs> you. I appreciate the call. <laughs> thank you, you sir. Okay. Uh-huh. Thank you, Bob. Certainly. Bye. Goodbye. All right, we'll get Carol in here before the news. Good morning, Carol. Hey, Bob. I have three cherry tomato plants in four-inch pots, and they're about a foot high, and a couple of them have like the beginnings of little blossoms, you know, not <laughs> not yet open. Yeah. Okay, now, here's the deal. I'm going out of town this coming week, and I want to know... I'm going to plant them a week from today when I get back. And okay. A neighbor's going to babysit them for me, and I wonder, should I repot those into six-inch pots for a week? I don't think it's worth it for a week. You know, if you're going for a month, I would say absolutely. If they're a foot mm-hmm. tall, I, maybe I wish she'd done it a couple of weeks ago. But at this point, yeah. just let that neighbor know they're going to have to be watered every day for sure. And when you do plant them, either, you know, dig a really deep hole and plant them way down in the soil or what some people will do when tomato plants get real tall, and a lot of the commercial guys do this, is they will, in effect, dig a trench. They will lay that tomato down in it and just kind of gently bend the top up where it's above the surface of the ground. And uh, that, you know, it'll form roots all the way up and down the stem, and you'll have one of the strongest plants you've ever had. I used to, uh, all those years ago, we seemed to be talking about my friend and mentor, but uh, when I worked with Alton, we had, uh, we'd have commercial growers come in, and they always tried to pick our biggest and most overgrown plants, and I asked them how on earth they were going to plant them, and that's what they said they did, is in effect make a trench, lay them down in it, and just have the top up out of the ground. So your, your tomatoes may grow another six inches in the week that you were out of town so <laughs> be prepared for some tall skinny characters when you get back but no i don't think it's worth repotting just for a week's time okay and i did feed them thursday with has to grow so i don't think she needs to feed them she just no. needs to make sure they're watered she right just needs to be real sure that they stay properly watered and plenty okay, of sun thank you yeah be sure they're oh, out yes. plenty of sun too well have a good trip carol oh, okay and uh Thanks. we'll talk when you get back All right. Love your show. Thank you so much. Bye.